In this episode of Tech Powered Luxury, we're diving into the world of lab-grown diamonds and 100% recycled gold with Chupi Sweetman, who's building a modern, sustainable and digital-first fine jewellery brand that's making waves internationally and changing the way women and men buy diamonds. Tech Powered Luxury is proud to be sponsored by Seabody, an Irish-based tech-powered beauty and wellness brand. Seabody has developed a unique next-gen approach to seaweed-based skincare and supplements. Luxury powered by technology with innovation at its core is exactly what this podcast is about. Find Seabody on Instagram or at seabody.com to discover their innovative products. Hello and welcome to the Tech Powered Luxury Podcast. It's your weekly podcast dedicated to the intersection of the luxury and technology industries. The goal of each of these episodes is to bring international and actionable insights to people passionate about the luxury and tech industries. For today's episode of Tech Powered Luxury, we have Dublin-based Chupi Sweetman, CEO and founder of Chupi, a modern and tech-led fine jewellery brand using a digital-first approach to build community with a global reach. Described by the Irish Times as one of Ireland's most loved brands, Chupi has taken diamonds into the 21st century and is known for her catchy tagline, making modern heirlooms for brilliant women. Chupi leverages technology at every step of creation, from the use of lab-grown diamonds to harnessing the opportunity of AR and VR for virtual try-ons, all the way to engaging with the following of over a quarter of a million, with the majority outside of Ireland. I'm really excited to speak with Chupi today about building her brand with a tech-first mindset and, of course, about all things diamonds, digital and sustainability. Chupi, welcome. Ashley, it's a pleasure to be here virtually, not in the room, but very much in the room. Yes. Um, Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you on board. I've been a really big fan of yours and your brand for many, many years. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But to get started, I'd like to ask you a question. Who are you and what led you to where you are today? So my name is Chupi Sweetman, and uh, I think when you get called Chupi, you definitely end up taking a certain route in life. I'm CEO and founder of Chupi Jewelry. We are uh, disrupting the diamond industry. So we make pieces that mark the most important moments of your life, from love, hope, and everything in between. We are based in Ireland. We've, as you said, over a quarter of a million people in our community. We sell into 70 countries around the world, and we make all of our really beautiful heirloom pieces sustainably right here in Ireland. Fantastic. Uh, Your story is really fascinating. I know it off by heart because I think I've listened to every podcast that you've ever been on, (laughs) a guest on. Um, But understanding your journey from a designer to entrepreneur to businesswoman and now, you know, the owner and builder of this incredible fine jewellery and luxury brand is really insightful. So for anyone who's maybe not so familiar with your jewellery brand, but also with your journey pre-Chupi, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that. Of course, Ashley. I think I always think about those headlines. You know, we talk about a quarter of a million people in the community selling into 70 countries, 50 people on the team, you know, beautiful diamonds. But actually, when you go back, what really brought me to diamonds and brought me to jewellery was um, I got scouted out of university when I was very young, when I was 21, to go and design for, at the time, one of the biggest brands on the high street in Europe. And it was incredible. It was a dream. You know, 21, I got to leave university, the dream of every student with this incredible career. I loved it. I worked for this, worked for the brand for a few years, absolutely adored it. And then I had a quarter life crisis. And I, I always think I, I started work so young, I didn't wait for a midlife crisis. I thought a quarter life <laughs> crisis was far more sensible. I did. I, I really accelerated it. I remember um, standing on the shop floor and thinking everything I'd ever made, everything I'd ever designed was destined ultimately for landfill. And that was such a strange thing as a designer thinking, I always think a good designer is a a problem solver. And so I was solving the problem of what did you wear on a Friday night? What did you wear going out? And then that same summer, my husband and I were over, my boyfriend at the time, in Montpellier in the south of France. And it was midnight during a wine festival. And he got down on one knee and proposed. And I I remember putting my engagement ring on for the first time and thinking, my gosh, I own a piece of the future. I... Literally, and at that point, my daughter, who was very much a figment of our imagination, um, one day my daughter will own this ring and her daughter afterwards. And I just, I really fell in love with the idea that fine jewellery is a piece of the future. It marks our moments and becomes part of our story and our biography. And so I did the only sensible thing, which is I quit my very sensible job. And uh, I retrained 
and I started this tiny business. I remember thinking, taking this enormous risk in my 20s and thinking, well, what's the worst thing that happens? It was described as post-partying pre-babies. So we were kind of, you know, kind of done a lot of partying and a lot of traveling, had a lot of fun. And we didn't have any responsibilities really at that stage. So we risked risked everything to start Chupi. And um, with this really strong belief that you could make beautiful things, make them well and build it with a technology and an expert piece yeah. in mind. You can't, I think, um, scale a company out of Ireland, which was our choice. So Ireland, a tiny little island on the western edge of Europe without thinking globally. And from day one, we thought technology, we thought global and we thought storytelling. Ultimately, Absolutely. that story is so part of what we all do. And what year was it that this idea came to light? And how long did it take to actually launch to go to market with Shoopy? Oh, Ashley, that's a good question. No one ever asks that. <laughs> My mum is wonderful. She always says we're an overnight success that took 13 years. And I think that's, <laughs> it's such an important thing to acknowledge. You know, you listen to all these amazing podcasts of all these incredible founders who have built empires and it always seems to be an overnight journey. So from... I think for us, it was about, it was two years from when we first, uh, first got engaged to when I, I, we officially kind of quit. I quit. Brian stayed, my husband stayed in a very sensible, well-paid job to ensure that we could, you know, afford to house and feed ourselves. And so it was about two years between those uh, two and that was 2013. So we're going to have our 10 year birthday next year, which is very exciting for two And, you know, you often hear about that journey pre-launch where it's treacherous and you have this element that's called like the desert, you know, where you've kind of come up with your idea. You have all of this excitement, all of this energy and momentum and you're just full of creativity, ideas, concepts. And then maybe the realisation comes, well, what do we need? What leverage do we need to have? Is it, you know, what, what resources are available to us? How did you get through that and how did you overcome it? I think there's a huge privilege to um, doing something you really believe in, to that real passion, that fire. Like I wanted to, I knew absolutely. So I, uh, my uh, family of economists on my, on my dad and my brothers and sisters and my mum is a journalist and a writer. And I think I was very lucky to have a really strong blend of a dream and a plan. And I think that's what I've always believed in is that idea of you need to have a dream, you need to know where you're going and what you want to do, but you need a plan and a strategy to get there. And I I think very early on, I realized that this was going to happen. We were going to do it through blood, sweat and tears, building Chupi and scaling it. Because I think if I can't imagine going out to the VCs 10 years ago saying we'd build a luxury diamond brand based out of Ireland. Ireland has very little in terms of luxury, very little in terms of diamonds, a wonderful, incredible place to grow and scale a business in terms of community but not in terms of, not less knowledge in terms of uh, certain other things. So we literally started with, we sold a pair of earrings. We were able to buy a printer. We sold, you know, a few more pairs. I literally remember hiring the first person into the team, the first real hire and going, you know, obviously before that had been all of my incredible friends and family and all of that support, but hiring our first person going, okay, we're, you know, we are selling this amount of money, this amount of jewelry per week. So that means I'm going to be able to cover one person's salary. And we very much scaled. Our CFO is wonderful. Actually, he calls it an aggressive organic model. (laughs) I think that's a great description of what we do. Aggressive organic. Yeah. I like it. (laughs) And well, D2C enabled that. So that huge wave of direct consumer, which, you know, it's crazy to think 10 years ago, that wasn't as big a thing as it is now, Mm -hmm. but it enabled us to talk directly, me through social media, to talk directly to people who loved what we love. And equally then to sell it directly, you know, that e-commerce solution built in, baked in from day one has been hugely powerful how we have scaled and grown over the last few years. Fantastic. And you mentioned that first pair of earrings. I would love to go back to that moment. What happened? Did you create them? How did you come up with the design? Was it a digital first approach from day one? And how did you sell them? And where did you sell them? Oh, Ashley, I love that. I've also never been asked that question. It's wonderful. <laughs> so um, I think very much, I, so I thought about the, you know, where are we strong? And I would always say, you know, like I said, good designers are problem solvers. So I thought, okay, what are we really good at? Really good at storytelling, really good at technology. Um, so let's, and really good at making beautiful things. Ireland is an incredible place to make. And we've got an amazing group of people who work, an amazing group of goldsmiths who work for us. So we did a few things at once. We set up um, a very old school, went with uh, essentially a stall. It's the Joe Malone school of thought, essentially get really close to the people you want to sell. So we had a gorgeous little space in this tiny little store in, in built in the actual, in the same space we have our now flagship, 1800 square foot flagship store. We had literally a table that was a kind of, you know, a meter and a half by half a meter little table with a few pieces of jewelry on it, launched a full website and then started building a social media following. So all three together 
from day one, like social media following. I mean, as in like yeah. three people liked the Facebook post and probably one of them was my mum. <laughs> so there was, yeah. it was very, That's very okay. early, early days. Yeah. And really, I, I always have always felt very passionately that if you want to make things that make people happy, which is ultimately the goal of every consumer brand, your job is to talk to your people. And so I stood on that, stood in that little store every weekend and met people and talked to them and listened and then spent my days and nights on the technology and marketing side of things. And uh, yeah, those first pieces were amazing. Just, um, I've always loved, I think as a, I've always loved that moment, you know, where you try on something or like a, a ring, a necklace, a dress, whatever it is. Uh, and you just, you're like, oh, you use something for the first time and you think, how did I ever live without this? That yeah. moment that makes you go, oh, wow, this was made for me. And I've always loved that moment. And I think that was a really important part of those very early days was getting to be part of those moments. And then I actually remember um, something that was quite pivotal a few years later was um, I got to meet the former vice president of Bloomingdale's. A really interesting guy who'd been part of Bloomingdale's scaling journey as they built out this very significant brand. And he, he said to me, he was like, yeah, the business is interesting but you are the value. How do we scale you? Mm-hmm. And for me, that was such a good question because it made me think, okay, you know, we obviously had a choice at the start. We could have stayed very small as a brand and as yep. a business. Very, you know, diamonds are a really fun sector to work in. You can be very intimate and boutique. And I thought, no, I want global. I want scale. Yep. I want to change the world. And I talked about disruption. We want to disrupt diamonds, not just in when you buy them. So for the moments, whether it's love or loss, yep. but also how you buy them and where they're made in terms of lab grown and sustainable. And that's what social media did. It enabled to, yep. us to scale a message and scale a story. Absolutely. I love that. And that the word scale, when I think of it, I go back to my days when I was working at Google. It's that tech mindset. Huge. How do I create a product that is scalable it's through technology. It's it through is. connecting with people. It's beyond borders. Like you said, you're based in Ireland. Yeah. Ireland's a very small country, you know, we Tiny. Don't have six million people. So it's actually really key as a luxury brand that perhaps less than 1% of any given population will be in market for that you're able to expand outside of that. So I would love to talk to you a little bit more about what is your market today and what are the countries that are you know, the most enticing for you or perhaps that you're the most established in already? So Ashley, I love that one because we always think about, I think especially ambitious and, and look, I sit on a slightly different point now, the, you know, we're 10 years old, we've done some incredible things. And so a huge part of that has been about community, not just our amazing TB community, but the community that have nurtured and brought me on the journey. So all of the amazing entrepreneurs who've given back to me and supported me at every stage. Um, you know, this Ireland is an amazing place to scale a business because there's amazing entrepreneurial communities so there's the Ernst Young Entrepreneur of the Year program which is a global program that is, is across, around the world fantastic there's another Enterprise Ireland KPMT packed program going for growth that is another phenomenal one and I now sit on that program and I get to support early stage entrepreneurs as they build and scale their businesses and the thing I would always say is narrow and deep not broad and shallow and that is something so we talk about 70 countries isn't it wonderful we've sold into 70 countries that's our beautiful headline statistic that goes out in all the press releases and and matters but actually we really only measure three uk us 80 20 rule as well isn't it it's the pareto principle as you well know like what's the 20 percent that moves it and for us as a as an aggressive organic business and we have very much focused on the markets that matter so UK, US and Ireland. That's where we count. We count the, we count the vanity, st- you need your vanity statistics, the gorgeous, yes. like serving the dream ones. And then you need the plan stats. And where we count is really UK, US and Ireland. And they have been incredible. We just smashed one of our biggest months ever into the UK, which I think, again, is that dichotomy of um, obviously the UK. And I feel it very passionately. My my dad is English, so I grew up half in London, half in, half in the UK in London and half in Ireland. And the UK is going through quite a turbulent time at the moment. But you can see for what we're doing, for the sector in for that luxury piece uh you know it's phenomenal there's still really stable really interested really engaged community who really want to know about the idea of buying your own diamonds absolutely and for anyone who's listening who maybe isn't familiar with chupi and is just discovering now the reality is you have one physical store in the world and that's (laughs) in dublin you know that that is incredible you've one store where you, you can actually go and try on your pieces in person it's in dublin but you have sold into 70 countries and even though you know your biggest markets are are ireland uk and us only a very small 
proportion of those people will have ever held a piece of chupi in their hands before making that purchase. Well, and I think it's so interesting, actually, because that's that thing around, can you sell luxury online? Can yep. you sell, if you think about how you've thought about diamonds, if you talk to your parents about how they bought the big diamonds in their lives, engagement, wedding, anniversaries, birthdays, babies, they almost certainly walked in store and had that experience. Whereas, and actually that's what the data says. So McKinsey says, up until 2025, we expect only one in five pieces of fine jewelry to be bought online. One in five, which is insane. I think that's high, 20% oh. for a really high priced luxury item. But that shows the opportunity for growth as well, because online is the future. It is. And we, so we hit 50%. On, an, on average, we'd be looking at 50-50. So for every, and that's on a value basis. So 50% of our revenue is online, mm-hmm. 50% in store. And uh, I, no, we, I, find that, I find it mind-blowing that because everything in my life is online. Everything I can automate, everything I can subscribe to, every every single thing then to our organic veggie box comes through. It's an online order. It goes through. It's on, on <laughs> auto-subscribe. Our dog food is on auto-subscribe. You'll be living in the metaverse soon. Oh, like, oh honestly, I'm totally <laughs> addicted Time. I always think time is the one thing you can't get more of. Time is your most precious asset. So be careful how you spend it. But when we think about, yeah, that global piece. So we've one retail store, as you said, a beautiful one just off the main shopping street in Dublin. And it's a beautiful space. We adore it. And we will ultimately plan. We're going to open a flagship in London. We're going to look at the West Coast US in the next four or five years. But ultimately, it's about attribution and how we think about it. It's a it's a multi-touch point journey. We think, you know, when we track, we look at how people come to us, how they discover us, how they rise through their journey. You might, you know, they might walk into work, they might do their entire journey online. And so for the first quarter of 22, we've already hosted people from nearly 20 countries who've traveled just to see us. You know, gorgeous wow. stories. Like I love it. You're putting yeah. Ireland on the map as a creator of luxury moments, but of course these heirlooms as well. I feel very proud about this. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> such fun because you have gorgeous. I was, I, uh, I was talking to the guys, our, our store team the other day, and they'd someone who'd flown in. He'd cut, flown over from, in from New York for the weekend just to buy the ring. And told her he was going for a work event, wasn't, no connection. Had just flown in, bought the bought beautiful diamonds now and has flown home with us. Another couple who, um, on their morning of their wedding, he gave her, we do these instead of, I guess, I'm always thinking about moments. It's the power of moments. Yeah. But instead of doing gift vouchers, we do gold coins. So he'd given yes. her a gold coin on the morning of their wedding. So it's taking something that's not a terribly good experience. A gift voucher can always feel a bit yeah. lackluster and making it instead like pirate, like balloons and gold. And he'd given her on the morning of their wedding uh, tickets to Ireland, to our store, and about, uh, this beautiful gold coin. So they flew over after they finished their honeymoon Kind of, I think it was about six months afterwards and came in and bought a beautiful heirloom to celebrate their first six months married. So that's such fun. So I would say, although we've won retail store, to never discount the power of physical retail as a customer acquisition tool, as a brand experience, as part of your digital story. Although we are a digital first brand, physical retail still is so powerful. Absolutely. And I think Ireland is part of your DNA as well. When I look at your designs, I've been actually a client of Chupi for many years, never for myself, Lovely. always for others. Actually, I know. But it's also the true sign of being a luxury brand, right? If yeah. you're viewed as something that is a desirable gift, yeah, that often can be the only question you need to ask to understand is something luxury or not. Can it yeah. be given as a gift that someone will be happy yeah. with? You know? <laughs> That's a really nice um, way of thinking about it. I love that as an explainer. Yeah, but it's it's amazing to see you putting Ireland on the map in terms of um, a builder of luxury, because of course Ireland's really well known as being this EMEA and even global hub for everything to do with technology. Also, I think we're pretty well known for our storytelling powers as well. So the fact that you've intertwined both technology with storytelling and building this brand really inspired in terms of design by the Irish nature and landscape is is fantastic to see. Um, but I'm sure people that are listening are wondering, how do you have all of this knowledge in your head? Because <laughs> you know everything inside out in terms of jewellery design, also lab grown diamonds, which I'd love to discuss a little bit more with you, but also being an entrepreneur, building a brand, being a designer. Can you tell us a little bit about your own educational journey that kind of led you to where you are? I can, of course. Um, I always, uh, so I was homeschooled when I was little and I always have to now, growing up, that wasn't, that was just a a thing. I was homeschooled and now um, homeschooling, I'm afraid, has has taken on a slightly different connotation in that it could be very much alternative. Alternative, I do, I'm a firm believer in evolution, I promise. I don't (laughs) believe in the dinosaurs. But when I was very little, I was, um, I was rather unwell. So I couldn't go to school with a compromised immune system. So it meant my Mm -hmm. mum, who was a writer and journalist, decided, okay, well, we're just educated home. And I think it was such a gift for her to do it. 
because really what homeschooling means in its broader sense is that uh, we were given the tools to learn rather than taught to learn. And I think that's if you view that through the lens of I've always found it fascinating that we expect education to serve 30 individuals. The idea that we'd put 20 to 30 individuals in a classroom and expect one person to be able to educate, inspire, you know, to bring them through that next stage of the journey. Really challenging, I think, because mine was very different. So when we were little, my brother and I were both homeschooled together and we were very much taught we could do anything we wanted to do. So we were given the tools. So we we decided we wanted to learn French. We'd go to the library and get all of the books we learned. I'm genuinely convinced if I told mom I wanted to be an astronaut, she would have been like, okay, darling, off we go to the library. Let's get books and astrophysics. (laughs) And so it meant that I um, I did all my state exams, of course, did all of those. And then um, went to university to do design, which was certainly my very strong passion. But Mm -hmm. I think, but always held a real passion. So I I would always say my my parents, that economist and and storyteller, that's the balance I hold it. I love, I've always loved Loved math, loved numbers, loved scaling and finance, and then equally loved the storytelling side of it. Mm-hmm. And then took a real, um, a, took, when I, I left, got scouted, um, left university, and, and only after first year, so I was very young leaving, I really thought, okay, I, I remember sitting down with my um, lecturer and saying I'd had this phenomenal opportunity of being scouted, of going to work, and they were horrified the idea that you would leave full-time education you know, just yeah. the, the horror of like no stay finish your degree do your master's then you know think about it afterwards and I thought again the same question I was my asked myself which is what's the worst thing that could happen yeah it's the worst thing that happens if I left uni at, in my at 20 and so I thought okay yeah I'll go for it and did it and I thought okay I owe it to myself then it's lifelong learning my job is to and I think that's also homeschooling is to not leave your education. You know, your education is never done. And, and so I've been really fortunate to have, I take on a, um, a kind of core professional development course every year. Wow. And so I do a big one each year. And it's meant that I've had a really phenomenally varied and exciting and challenging um, education through both entrepreneurship itself, yes, but equally through the programs and uh, courses and universities I've attended. So it's meant that, yeah. It's really kept me on my toes and meant that learning has been hugely powerful. So consciously every year you ask yourself, what am I going to learn and where am I going to learn it and how am I going to learn it? And then you go about it. And very importantly, looking for balance within that. So I'll forecast out for the next three or four years. What do I expect to be doing? What's my role now? I always think as a CEO, my job ultimately, and as a founder, my job ultimately is to get rid of my job. My job is to make myself unemployed ultimately. So I uh, even, you know, when I think about GP, I ask my board every year. I'm like, am I the right CEO for the business? Do I do what we need to do? What, where are my gaps? What can I, like I get an appraisal and I equally give myself one, a, a 360 and then go, am I the right CEO? Should we hire someone else? Because that's been my job over the last few years is hiring, finding and bringing in exceptional people to grow GP. And if I think that that's what I want to do, I have to think, well, how do I make myself exceptional? How do I make sure that I stay sharp? And it's been brilliant. It's meant that I've done, I think what I try and do as well is not, you know, it can be very easy if you're tied to an institution or a university to keep attending that same one. But what I've tried to do is really make sure that I've gone to different touch points and put myself in different peer groups, which is a wonderful thing of homeschooling again, because you're not, you don't have an automatic peer group because you have a, a very wide group of friends, kind of older and younger. So it meant, so, you know, one of the courses I've done, we are across our 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s. And that gives you perspective. You know, you're talking, you're learning and growing and developing with people in their 60s who have, you know, are 30 years ahead of me in terms of career yeah. and life. And it makes you think, okay, I'm fretting about this detail today. The big picture, helicopter view, get out of the details. What, what's the impact going to be? What do what do I want to do when I'm in my 60s? How, what's the difference I'm going to make? What's the mark I'm going to leave? Which has been so powerful. That's it. I, I do. I do threaten every now and then I'm going to go back and do fully commit and do an MBA, but I haven't okay. quite found the time. Give me another few years and I'll go back and finish it. I think you could probably teach one at this stage too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but look, it's the power of perspective as well. It seems from what you're saying, being able to yeah have that helicopter view, take a step back. This detail that I'm fretting over today is it important or not? And will it be important in five years' time? And being able to consistently plan ahead even on your own education and the skills that you need. I think they're the kind of people that are listening to this podcast today who are always interested in learning and being on top of what is needed to succeed in the future. But actually, what a gift. Like we are a generation and we are so privileged. We have the with the education of the world at our fingertips. If you think about this podcast, if you think about all of the access we have to education and learning, it's 
it's incredible like you you just I, I like I guess it breaks my heart I don't have more time I'm like I could devour books um a gang of mine um an amazing group who I, I were out for dinner get breathing and I had to miss it and uh, the whatsapp messages started coming in of all the books they were reading at the moment all the you know like all these phenomenal education development um books and I was like oh I'm missing I'm missing that conversation <laughs> because it's not they're not talking about and like look clearly I have you know I also talk about all the trashy things we're watching on tv but they were obsessing about <laughs> how they were balance. growing and how they're changing balance it's all about balance and and I think what they taught me this amazing group of women is that Pareto principle once you're 20 percent, that's going to move the needle and focusing on that because I think it's very easy to get caught on the 80 percent mm. but what's your 20 percent absolutely Tech Powered Luxury sponsor Seabody uses state of the art blue biotechnologies and marine biodiscovery. Seabody includes the most potent and closest to nature molecules in their ranges of skincare and supplements. You can discover more about Seabody on Instagram or at seabody.com. Chupi, I would love to spend a couple of minutes just learning from you about lab grown diamonds because I know you have a wealth of knowledge in this area. And I think the understanding of lab grown diamonds today is relatively low because there's something pretty new to the market and not being proposed yet by the majority of luxury brands. So could you take us through what is your process actually when it comes to lab grown diamonds and including them within your own designs? How do you source them and how do you take care of them afterwards? Oh, I think there's such an exciting opportunity, Ashley. As so lab grown diamonds are a really interesting new category. So if I take you back out of lab grown diamonds and think about diamonds, so think about the moments in your life that have been marked by a diamond, the moments in your parents' lives, they're very much, it's, it's a fusty world. It's very mad men. It's a way your wallet, being kid love, velvet curtained experience. And actually that's hugely because it's been designed by men for men. Mm-hmm. It's been designed around engagement, wedding, baby, big birthday. And that's pretty much it. But actually, when you think about what diamonds represent, they represent celebration, empowerment, you know, that idea of owning our own moments of deciding. Mm-hmm. So I think about the diamonds I have in my life. I have one for I have my engagement ring, of course, I have my wedding band, I have one for my beautiful daughter, but I have the diamond I bought myself when I hit like when we turned over our first million. I wow. remember I have my diamonds I bought for all those career highs. I equally have ones over, I wear a North Star necklace as a reminder to follow my own North Star and not anyone yeah. else's because all of ours are different. So those are all big diamond moments. And so far where diamonds have lived is very much, it's very gray. It's very obscure. It's not an industry known for its ethics by any means. Yeah. And I think stepping into diamonds as an outsider, I really wanted to dis- disrupt that. I wanted to change how they're made. So we make everything in Ireland. We use recycled gold. We've got this really strong sustainability piece. And then when we looked at our diamonds ourselves, so we used 55,000 diamonds last year and 80% were recycled, which is really exciting. But the other percentage, which is the bit that's really, really getting us excited as a team at GP yes. and equally about the industry is lab grown diamonds. So that 80%, are they lab grown? So 80% recycled currently with the okay. remainder looking at that lab grown, but lab grown is our fastest growing category. We're going to be flipping that. Mm-hmm. I think it'll flip probably next year rather yeah. than this year, I'd say is where it's going to sit because lab grown is essentially, so we started out going, okay, how do we disrupt an industry? Let's look at what the norms are. Let's look at what the standards are and what is out there. So lab grown diamonds are, take, you take a seed of a mined diamond. So a seed of like a tiny piece of a mined diamond. And then they subject it to the same heat, light. There's really extreme conditions. So you think about diamonds are formed essentially at the base of volcanoes. So that kind of light, heat and pressure in a laboratory over kind of about kind of anywhere between one to three months. And then they grow a lab grown diamond. And from that, you've got a diamond rough. The diamonds are then cut in the same way that you would cut a mined diamond, polished in the same way and then graded. So those four C's we talk about in diamonds, cut, color, clarity, and carrot, the four ways we measure. And four C's, and again, it's all marketing. It sounds very fancy. Essentially, they're just measurement tools. Okay. Cut, what way is it cut? Clarity, what color is it? Carrot, what does it weigh? And color, what color? Um, And it means that we can then assess our beautiful, the lab-grown diamonds get assessed, and then we can source them and use them in our beautiful jewelry. Where it's really exciting is that lab grown diamonds offer a carbon opportunity. Mm-hmm. So you talked about where do, who do we work with? Yeah. So we work with some phenomenal labs around the world, primarily in the US, some of whom are, all of them are carbon neutral, but some of them are even carbon negative, where they're taking carbon from the atmosphere because mm-hmm. car- diamonds are really carbon heavy, as you'd imagine, mm-hmm. and growing diamonds using the carbon. Like it, it's just, it's a whole other game that's going to take diamonds from the murky back room 
in terms of the ethics and sustainability, we can literally show you the lab where your diamond was grown. And it's taking it into a whole new world. So in of opportunity, of diamonds being a celebration as opposed to a madman-esque experience. Fantastic. And I okay, I have so many questions now. I think I have more questions than before. <laughs> okay, first question. In terms of the speed of growing these lab-grown diamonds, how does it compare to natural diamonds? Oh, so it's fascinating, actually. Mind, in natural mine diamonds, there's enough diamonds above the earth that we don't need to go and mine a single, a single other one of them. Because obviously the challenge is conflict in there. And so we don't actually need to go and get any more diamonds. So there are lots of diamonds around. They're just controlled in terms of how they're released into the market. So that three-month window to grow a lab-grown is amazing. And obviously yeah. lab-grown diamonds can also be lab-grown sapphires. You can get yeah. other lab-grown stones within it. What makes it exciting is that they are, because you can create beautiful man-made stones. So there's lots of man-made stones yes. in the world. What's exciting about lab-grown diamonds is that they have a massive, there's a, there's a certain percentage of error and each one is naturally different. So it's not about perfection. So when you look at a lab-grown diamond, you're going to see flaws, you're going to see inclusion, yeah. you're going to see colour. So I always think the magic of diamonds is that no two are the same. Mm-hmm. And lab-grown diamonds, you got all of that magic of that idea of no two the same, of the idea it was grown for you without needing to worry about any of the other challenges within the industry. Yeah. And then I think one question that a lot of people are going to be asking, maybe if they're listening to this, they're already Googling it. What's the price difference? Oh, actually, that's the exciting thing. So it's about, it can be between about 20 and 30% cheaper than a traditional yeah. diamond. So look, it's not going to change the world massively, but it might make the difference between a lovely one, one, one and a half carat and a beautiful two carat. Yeah. And it means, yeah, I think it's it, like, it's not, it's not a massive party because they're so expensive to grow and so time okay. consuming and so, uh, so industrially heavy to do it. So they take a lot of time to do it. So they aren't massively like 30, 20, 20, 30% is good, but um, it's really the, it's, it's a combination. So I would say most people, instead of going, oh, it's a little bit cheaper, they're like, I can get more diamond. That's where <laughs> okay. I would think about it. You can go it. bigger. You can be like, yeah, you can have the same budget, but you can get a bigger diamond okay. for your budget. Because nearly, we tend to come to these decisions when you're thinking about engagement, wedding. And, and what's fascinating is there's a real sea change. Engagement rings are now 50, 50 or half of the time are 50, 50. So half of the time the couple will be buying it together and only half the time one party will be buying it to propose. So it's now not about hey, he has to, it's always he in this traditional world, he has to go and spend, you know, three to five times his salary on this on this um, ring. It's now about how do we want to allocate our money and our resources in our family and our life? Where do we want to spend it and how do we want to spend yes. it? And so that's a really lovely joint decision together to be able to make. Really insightful. And I guess the question, even from a consumer perspective for myself, I see three main benefits of buying a lab-grown diamond. First one, it's the ethical side of things. You know that all the regulations are in place. You don't have anything to worry about. Secondly, the sustainability side of things, especially not only having carbon neutral, but carbon negative, which is what we all should be aiming for actually in in business. And then lastly, there is that uh, slight... uh, you know, cost savings are yeah. you could spend the same but get the bigger diamond. Um, do you think, you know, those three things combined are going to help shift the consumer mindset towards lab grown diamonds versus natural diamonds? Hugely. You can see it shifting already. It's absolutely enormous. Even since we first launched our first lab grown diamonds over three years ago, the chain, the acceleration, like it is hockey stick level acceleration mm-hmm. as people adopt it. I think you know, there's always going to be people, I think about it, the, the best analogy I can come with is fur coats. That's what I was so thinking. I, um, I was thinking about, you yeah, know, isn't it? Yeah, real fur versus fake fur. Um, it's exactly what I had in my mind. <laughs> yeah, because it's fascinating. So I'm 38. Um, and when I think about when I was in my early 20s, I would have worn my grandmother's fur coat. I would have yeah. been like on a night out. I would have worn a beautiful fur of hers. And if anyone had asked, I would have been like, my God, I would never have bought fur. I've never bought fur in my life. Mm. But I would have in my early 20s worn fur and been like, yeah, yeah it's, but it's my granny's. I didn't contribute it, to it. And I think in the same way, I actually was giving, um, I had to give a talk the other day and it was amazing, really incredible group. Uh, group I was speaking to is about 500 and a really lovely age range, 500 people. And it was kind of quite young, late teens all the way up into kind of corporate mid 50s and uh, we were talking to them afterwards I did kind of a Q&A just with them as the interns I thought you know how often as an intern do you actually get to talk to the person doing the lecture yeah. so I said I asked the guys could I do half an hour with them afterwards and we were talking about lab-grown diamonds and I was saying would you ever wear a mined diamond and they were just horrified 
you know, they their idea it was like fur coat. It was yeah. our generation's fur coat where they would never wear fur, never buy diamonds. So I think look, I think there's always gonna be a place for beautiful stones mined well. We have some amazing partnerships with like we've a mine we work with in Sri Lanka where we work directly with the mine, buying these beautiful pink sapphires. We know the team who are working on the ground, we know all the projects they have in place, we know about their education piece. It's it's a female led mine. So there's always gonna be a place for good mining but where i think we want to get away is the murkier darker piece because actually actually like you know i think about all of the the challenges of the last few years and all of us have had you know we've been on a roller coaster ride over the last few years and one of ours was um you know we always look at our so we're always looking at our suppliers our supply supply chain what are we doing how can we do better how can we bring our suppliers so one of our amazing diamond suppliers who's been with us for the last 10 years has come with us on this journey to the point that he's just gone carbon neutral so his whole organization has gone carbon neutral because of everything we've done together he's a phenomenal guy and that's been just amazing doing that with him we care passionately we as consumers me as a person as a founder us as a team you and i we care passionately be how and where things are made and there are all of the the murkiness is no longer acceptable and so that will come forward into our conversation around blockchain that we're going to have later but how and where things are made matters and actually i should add on a final note whilst at present, lab grown diamonds are finding their feet in luxury. Only a few months, LV, only a few months ago, LVMH just went and bought a lab grown diamond manufacturer. There we go. That that says it all. That shows where the industry is going. <laughs> you can see it. You know, they literally. So I was laughing because we've been we've been on this lab grown diamonds are luxury and they're going to be luxury. And I was literally, I was giving a talk the next day, the, the day after the LVMH purchase. And I was, I was laughing. I was going, I couldn't have timed it, couldn't have timed it better in terms of that. Like it's a really exciting move for not for, not just for cheapy, but obviously for the whole sector and for the whole industry and the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, it future proofs business across, you know, the triple bottom line. Yeah. People, planet, but also profit. And when you talk about disrupted supply chains and having this murkiness in a business that I think today for Gen Z consumers is no longer acceptable at all. Um, it won't be acceptable in general for all generations very soon. So yeah, it's, it's really, I'm amazed and also very grateful to see a brand like you before the regulations kick in already taking those steps and, and paving the way. Our job is not to preach to anyone. Our job is to do the right thing and to do it. Yeah. With that triple bottom line in mind, our job is to, you know, business can be a force for good. You just have to make the right choices. Absolutely. Chupi, I think everyone listening will have a much stronger and maybe a fresh uh, understanding of, of lab grown diamonds and what it means to build a modern uh, luxury jewellery brand. But if we move even further into the future uh, or perhaps the present for some elements of your business, when it comes to technology, you mentioned it already, blockchain, Web3. Could you tell us a little bit about how you're preparing for that or already integrating elements of Web3 into your communication and uh, e-commerce today? Uh, I think it's, um, we, we were touching on this just before we started. And I, I think sometimes Web3 sounds terrifying, you know, as if you, know, you talked about in your first episode, trying to demystify it, because it sounds like this big, scary monster, you know, like, is there going to be a quiz afterwards on the metaverse? Mm-hmm. But actually, so we sit on, I sit on Meta's Innovation Committee, looking at augmented, mixed and virtual reality. And it's just, it, it sounds, it sounds so huge. And I'm always, I'm always saying, okay, actually, if you boil it down to what it is, we're already using augmented and mixed reality every day when you take a picture on your phone and you swipe and you put on a filter when you take you know all of that is already sitting into augmented and mixed which is so exciting so i think for two people because we knew from day one we wanted global and we knew 100% that it was going to be a technology back piece. Um, I, I was laughing. I always get asked, what's my best advice for founders? And I would say, marry your CTO. It's terribly useful. So, <laughs> is, this, Brian, is this what you did? <laughs> it, it, honestly, it's terribly useful. So Brian is our CTO. Um, Fantastic. So, we, so your husband is the CTO. <laughs> very, very useful, I have to say. Very, so you have very a, a tech co-founder. <laughs> we do. Yeah, a tech co-founder is the dream. I have to say, if you marry them, it's even more convenient so they can't get poached. I'm always, he's always teasing me. He's like, I got another amazing offer of CTO. Uh, yeah hounded on LinkedIn he's like I got another amazing offer I'm like yes let's be clear though we're married you have to stay <laughs> if so, they take him they have to take you with them oh like literally well like no, they can't even have him I'm like I'm like no remember this is our first baby. we have two babies this baby and our tiny little human baby um but for us it was very much that technology baked in from day one so we went with a really strong digital first approach went and built so much of so much of our core infrastructure around the idea of scaling around the idea that we'd be global and then really looked at how we addressed, if you think about a very physical product, very tangible product like jewelry, you know, the joy is sliding on the ring and getting to like, you know, see it sparkle on your hand. How do we address that problem? So 
We've been looking at that through various. We've our development and technology teams in house, um, which is always it's always an interesting one. There's a real split about whether uh, you know brands should have that kind of have that, especially smaller when we were when we were much smaller, having that expense in house as opposed to working on a project by project basis. But for us, what it's meant is innovation consistent, mm. ongoing, ever-chasing innovation that has kept us ahead of what's happening, trend in the market and, and made sure, you know, things like when all the world closed down with COVID two years ago, we were able to, you know, build projects that we've been sitting on and launch them. So things like we have um, augmented reality. So we've got a virtual trial. So if you go to cheapy.com you can and you look at any of the beautiful rings, you can take a picture of your hand and you can try on. So you can go, oh, I'm thinking, okay, I love my engagement ring, but actually I'd really like, well, I'm not sure what wedding band I want. You can start trying yeah. on wedding bands. Or you're going, actually, I want to mark a huge birthday that's coming up. What would a signet ring look like on that mm-hmm. hand? And it's an amazing way to take, to bring our global audience who sit, our audience sits predominantly outside of Ireland, to take them with us on that journey and for them to be able to try on pieces and try on jewellery. So that has been huge. We had 100,000 try-ons in the first uh, 100 days, which was insane. And, wow. and then gorgeous, you know, d- really delivering on that bottom line piece where we can see people who use our augmented reality experience are yeah. checking out at about 20 something plus percent higher average order value than those that don't. We've reduced returns from it as a project. Um, and then we've other things. We do lots of other uh, machine learning, helping us understand. So we have for those of your listeners old enough to remember and possibly not a lot of them but mm-hmm. Cosmopolitan magazine used to be famous for a quiz you know it's like find your perfect boyfriend in five easy steps or you know what's your perfect <laughs> pair of jeans or your perfect swimsuit yeah. you can answer all the little questions we've built beautiful versions of that that then you know find your perfect engagement ring and it means you can again use this on gp.com yeah. try you know we'll you will ask you do you want something really dramatic do you want something understated would you like a diamond or a colored stone and then we're using machine learning underneath that's working through everyone who's previously used that experience and serving you the results that are most likely to suit your needs and that kind of you know just that again cuts down hugely on that on the returns rate gives people an incredible experience and so we've got some beautiful stuff built in today but I think actually what we're always thinking about is also tomorrow and what what is it like I think we get obsessed as founders indeed as entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs at solving problems and um, what we always try and dial it back to is what problem matters to the people who care about we what we care about not just what's the problem we want to solve yeah. but what problem so when we talk about the problem cheapy solves we help people mark the biggest moments in their lives yes from love to hope and everything in between so then we need to think about our tools delivering for that not just like god wouldn't this be fun let's build an amazing sexy thingamabob but actually <laughs> because that's very easy you know we yeah. build beautiful sexy pieces of technology but so we thought about a challenge within the business which is um we want to be able to we want to be able to make you a beautiful ring but unfortunately and we're not with the amazonization of retail there's an expectation of same day delivery and same day shipping yeah. we are making you a beautiful diamond ring handmade in ireland by 13 different people we can't get it to you on the same day so what we did instead was we looked at okay what's happening in other sectors yeah crashing we looked at you know what what's happening in other sectors and under, other industries how are people solving this problem mm-hmm. of delayed delivery and we thought okay well what's delivery doing that's so exceptional what they do is they enable me i'm starving to order dinner and then follow the nice person on the bicycle who's bringing me my pizza or my sushi or whatever i've ordered and i can obsessively watch the restaurant making it i can watch each stage it's at i can watch yeah. the the beautiful person on the bike who's delivering and see when they're outside of my house and it takes away order anxiety in a really profound way so yeah. We've done that with um, our own beautiful projects. That means if you order your gorgeous diamond ring on Cheapy, you're able to follow its journey. So you can see it. We've got a beautiful cloud-based inventory management system backing it up, Mm -hmm. lovely e-commerce partner in Shopify. But what it means for you as a customer is you can be part of an experience. Yeah. And I think we get very obsessed with technology solving a problem, but actually ultimately it's all human beings and all about story and all about experience. Mm. So instead of just being your ring is going to take forty two working day forty two days. Yeah. It says that can sound a bit scary. <laughs> it just sounds really grim. It's instead yeah. of telling you your ring is your ring has been made for you. It's going to be six weeks. Your ring is now it's gone to our diamond setter. Our diamond here's a picture of what it looks like a video of how Fantastic. he sets diamonds individually. Here he is in the mountains in Ireland setting the diamonds into your ring. Here's your ring going to the Dublin Castle. We 
um, you know, this is what's happening in Dublin Castle. Your ring will go onto a register, a paper register that is over over a couple of hundred years old. And in a couple of hundred years, when your great, great, great grandchildren look at your ring, they're going to see a little mark. This is very early blockchain, actually. This is, yeah. like, you know, the start of it. They're going to be able to see a mark. How it originated. Take that ring to Dublin Castle and be able to tell that that ring was made in Dublin, made in Ireland and marked in Dublin Castle. So we've made an experiential piece. And I think then bringing that onto blockchain, that's really where we're looking next. Absolutely. And actually, I've so many things going through my head as you're telling me about this. First of all, the storytelling involved in that journey, isn't that just beautiful and how it can build trust, but also a real connection with the journey of this ring. And I can imagine if someone is buying an engagement ring for someone else to go and propose having this level of transparency, it's not only going to maybe get rid of any fear or worries that they have, is my ring going to arrive on time? But actually they're kind of going on this journey with the ring before it arrives to whoever's going to wear it. So that that's beautiful as well. Um, but the other thing I had thinking, uh, the other thought I had, it was about um, NFTs and how not only do you have this piece of paper in Dublin Castle, but, you know, are you starting to think about how can you bring uh, a twinning concept into the offering? Oh, it's so part of it. And it's so exciting because, you know, you think about that very old fashioned. So every piece of jewelry you own, if you take off anything you're wearing now, any fine jewelry, gold or solid gold, it'll have tiny little marks on the inside. They're called an assay mark. And that tells you it'll have a, a stamp for the country of origin. So it'll say where it was made and it should you then able to tell. So it's, it's literally primitive blockchain. Yeah. And so when we think about addressing our customer needs what are your needs with a piece of fine jewelry what you want to be able to do is you want to know how it was made and where it was made but equally at some point in the future you might want to be able to pass it on to someone else and you want to be able to think about insurance and how you're covered for that so one of our next big projects is moving uh, is building a blockchain or working with blockchain and so we're going to be able to register your piece from the very start from the diamonds moving through your blockchain gold as your piece gets made it becoming part of your owner you and moving into you likewise looking at the nft piece that goes with it that's going to tie it all together and then looking at um a virtual jewelry box which i think is going to be really exciting oh i love it if you think it's really funny, actually, if you ask my my, pro, my um, technology team, they tell you it's product registration. They're like, no, no, like, folks, this is about product registration. And if you ask my marketing team, it's about that idea of virtual jewelry box, bringing it all together. What does it mean for you as a person? I think about my collection. So if you think about the jewelry you own in your life, most of it you will have been given. So the pieces that mark the most important moments in your life, half of them will have come from someone else. It will have come from your partner, will have come from your parents. And so that idea of being able to bring it all together and curate it. And then for us as the brand to understand the pieces you own and to be able to support you at every stage of your journey through that, to be able to suggest, okay, maybe you're missing this bit or have you thought about that bit? And so virtual jewelry box, they're both blockchain in terms of product registration through from manufacturing to ownership and then on and beyond. And then likewise, virtual a virtual jewellery box to be able to manage everything you own, not just the pieces you have bought, you have bought directly from us, but the pieces yeah. you've been given as well. So really exciting. We're, we're kicking into that uh, mid next year and I cannot wait. I think realistically and obviously development timelines, I always laugh, you know, you can have all your optimism about your development timelines. Realistically, I think we're going to be about a year in development. We're just in, in pre, pre-dev now and probably launching in 24, but I'm really excited about it and what it will mean for the future. Isn't that fantastic to be, you're moving from a world where you have, you know, digital wallets to already the virtual jewellery box. I love it. I think people will be hearing that for the first time here. And I think you are going to be that brand that's helping, you know, the future of fine jewellery customers as well move into the digital world. With Gen Z, it's going to be second nature. It's it's not going to be a question. It's actually going to be: Do I have that NFT, or you know, do I have the? It's going to be twin? an expectation. Yeah, like I think it's going to be so part of our expectation that we're able to own our things virtually and digitally. Um, because if you think about that that piece, that question right now, and for most of us, our fine jewelry sits yeah. on our hands with no record. Yeah. You've no record anywhere of the pieces you own, of what they look like, of what they feel like. It's and like look in in one sense, this imaging technology has to catch up with us a little bit. So at present, our for example, a virtual try-on is static rather than it's not moving. And that's hugely because literally the processing power in phones cannot yet render a diamond well in augmented reality. Yeah. So diamonds are like water. They're really, really challenging mm-hmm. to render. So there's a, there's a piece of all of the things needing to run together. Yeah. You know, we're all kind of running at pace. But I think that idea of trying, of tying digital and physical is essential. Like I, you know, I, I don't... I, I need I need a digital version of everything I own now. You know, I, I think about um, cloud-based. You know, everything we own is in the cloud, but why not 
the things we physically own. They have yeah. to be there, safe somewhere. And it's it's starting to happen. I actually see a huge amount of investment happening in that space as well. Startups who are coming and they're the future of security, the future of insurance. You know, you send in your items to be evaluated. A digital version of them is made. It's saved. Your actual items are sent back to you. I think we're going to see a lot of that when it comes to jewellery. Like why keep your jewellery in an actual vault if you want to be wearing it and living with it and having a part of your daily life. So very interested to see how that moves. And on that note, I want to ask you, what do you think will be the biggest technological change in the hard luxury sector within the upcoming months and years? I think the huge one is going to be that, like we, we're ending, really ending on that piece of that huge tying together of virtual and physical, of no longer, like luxury has been a very physical space, very tangible, very, you know, about the feel, the look, but actually that evolution that so many brands are taking, you see them expanding yeah. into the metaverse, but equally tying it together where it's relevant. You know, yeah. we get obsessed, you know, there's lots of exciting things happening, but for luxury has to serve many consumers at many different points in their lives and so we have to make it relevant for our customer not just for brilliant gen z who are out there changing the world doing amazing mm. things who are really forward thinking we have to think the likes of a virtual jewelry box that's going to appeal not only to our cheapy fans in their 20s but it's also going to touch hearts and minds of those in their 60s and 70s and so i think that bringing the two of them together you know i, I think about we all remember sharon clueless and her virtual wardrobe you know that yeah. seemed like it was such a ridiculous concept, science fiction at the time <laughs> total science fiction but, yeah. but that idea of, of taking us out of um it just being a physical and then but and making it a digital experience will be huge not even touching the metaverse yeah. but just making it something that actually becomes part of our lives where we hold our assets ultimately you know we hold so many of our assets on online but that our physical assets also become part of a digital catalog digital library for ourselves yeah. our own digital library i love it well the virtual jewelry box that's one that i'm really going to take away from from our chat today um but Chubi, thank you so much for sharing your deep knowledge and insights and everything to do with fine jewelry but also entrepreneurship how to leverage technology across a business uh, it's been really really interesting and to close this episode of tech powered luxury i'd like to ask you one last question what is the one skill that you would recommend industry insiders to start working on today understand your why and understand the, who you want to serve why. I think it's the, we get obsessed with our own, like obviously Simon Sinek start with why, we get obsessed with our own why, but we forget to obsess about who are we serving. What's, like I said, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to change the world. But what does that mean to someone else? It's that it's that question of what's the problem you're solving and get really clear on it. Because this is, you know, what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? That quote, you need to figure out your why and then the why of the people you're serving. Fantastic. Figure out your why and of your customers. I love it. Chupi, thank you so much for anyone who's listening and wondering where can they go discover these fabulous lab-grown diamonds and try on uh, virtually their rings. Uh, Chupi.com, C-H-U-P-I. Or you can find Chupi across socials as well. Over a quarter of a million followers, big community. So go and join it. Uh, Chupi, thank you so much. It's been amazing. Ashley, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Tech Powered Luxury, your weekly podcast on all things luxury and tech. If you have enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe and follow Tech Powered Luxury on Instagram, TikTok, Snap, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter. Tech Powered Luxury is proud to partner with GladCloud, the platform that is powering our media campaigns through its collaborative social media marketing platform, which is perhaps how you have discovered the podcast today. We'd love to hear from you if you have any ideas, questions, or would like to join us as a guest. 